story is told about a passenger aboard an, an ocean liner and one of his first travels overseas, and he was so sick, he was leaning over the railing, um, vomiting, throwing up tomorrow's lunch. It was horrible. It was so distressful for him. And a, a, a steward came up to him and kind of gently tapped on his shoulder and said, don't be discouraged, sir. You know, no, one's, no one has ever died of seasickness yet. And the nauseated passenger looked up with disdain in his eyes and said, oh, don't say that. It's only the hope of dying that's kept me alive this long. You know, hope is a funny thing. I mean, I do hope that my Eagles win the Super Bowl next year. I am also aware that not all of you share that hope with me. My brother Danny, I'm sure you continue to hope that your Patriots make it back to the Super Bowl year in and year out. I don't necessarily share that hope. The world offers hope, and it is based in some part in truth. Now, I don't know if you're kind of the statistics nerd like I am, and I like to look up statistics. And what they do every year before the Super Bowl is they look at all the teams who are in the playoffs. There's 12 teams, six for the, each conference. And they list the probability, and they actually rank the teams according to the probability that they will make it and win the Super Bowl. And the Patriots were not number one, and they were not number two, to my recollection, but neither were the Eagles. And they will actually assign statistic, you know, 12% or 35% possibility that they will go to and win the Super Bowl. And it's rooted in statistics, and statistics are facts, and facts, well, I guess facts are truth. And so the world offers hope based in facts. I don't even remember, what was it, 08, 9, 10, somewhere around, wow, I've forgotten. But Tim Tebow, after the Gators had lost to Mississippi State, he stood in front of Gator Nation on televised TV. He, he declared and he made a promise. And he said, you will never see a team work harder and try and play smarter than we will in order to win every game from here on out. And that was his promise. It was rooted in some truth, but we took it on Tim Tebow's word. And not only did they win their conference, but they went on to win the national playoff championship. And Tim Tebow, I, I don't think it was that year, but he had, at some point in his sophomore year, right, he had won the uh, Heisman Trophy. And so because of that, we kind of lent some credibility to him. But here's a reality. Our hope is only as good as the promise giver. Our hope is only as good as the promise giver. Our hope, of course, is in Jesus Christ and his promises. So it depends, I guess, on who makes that promise. Now, last week we learned that our hope is rooted in promise and promises, God's promises are rooted in truth. And God is faithful and his truth is unyielding. It is solid. It is a firm foundation. Now, I want you now to look at chapter 10, verses 24 to 25. He had been talking about us drawing near to God based on these truths that Jesus Christ was a, a sufficient sacrifice. We, we learned and looked at this word propitiation, and he was the sufficient sacrificer, that when he had made the sacrifice, so not only was the sacrifice, but he was the sacrificer, not only was he the offering, but the high priest that offered that sacrifice, he then sat down at the right hand of the Father. Done. Whereas uh, Hebrews 10 says that the, uh, the high priest stood year after year. Jesus, though, sat down, finished, work completed. This is the truth, and so consequently we can draw near to God. And then we learned that our hope is based in this faithful high priest, and it is based in the faithfulness of God, and consequently, they will come to pass. And therefore, uh, we profess our hope. It is not just something we keep to ourselves, but we declare this hope. 
And I want to encourage you, church, sometimes when we are getting discouraged, the best thing that we can do is declare, is profess God's promises. And, and remember that he is faithful and he will keep his promises. Look at chapter 10, verse 24. And oh, I'm sorry. And so then we learned the third thing was that we are called now to encourage one another. We meet together, we encourage, and the express purpose is to encourage and hope and, and instill. Encourage means to infuse courage, to be able to go on to the next day. It's mixed with faith and hope. And so we've learned now that this is, our, this is our purpose. When we gather together, our goal is to infuse courage, infuse hope in one another. And so the chapter goes on, and he concludes this chapter with verses 23, excuse me, with verses 30, yeah, 24, and yeah, I'll get this right with verses 35 and 36. Now look there with me, Hebrews 10, 35 and 36. So in view of what I've just shared here with you, do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. When you have done the will of God, when you have persevered, then you will receive that promise. So don't veer off course. Don't get entangled in sin's deceptiveness. Don't let your heart be hardened as the Moses generation that did not believe. And they were sinful. They were disobedient. And they did not enter their rest. Don't let your heart become like that. So persevere. Hang on. Hold on to this hope that we have, to this confidence that we have. And then he says in, the, in verse 38, he says, my righteous one will live by faith. That's his conclusion. My righteous one, those who stand in the righteousness of Christ by faith in Jesus, he says right here, you will live by faith. So here's where we're going today. What is faith? All of chapter 11 deals with example after example after example. And after maybe three or four examples, you might say, you know what, author of Hebrews, I got it. And he goes on, <coughs> excuse me, with another three or four. And you think, oh, okay, wow, I, I think I get it a little bit more. And he goes on with another three or four. <coughs> excuse me. But with example after example, he gives us and he helps define and flesh out this concept of faith. So where does faith come into play here, and how is it different from hope? Well, hope rests on God's promises, and therefore hope looks to the future, right? I have a hope that my Eagles will one day make it back to the Super Bowl game, and that looks to the future. Others of you, no, not so much. But we do have a hope in Jesus Christ. He is called the blessed hope. That blessed hope is his return to us because we know when he returns to us at the consummation of the ages, that's when everything changes, church. That's when the curse is lifted. That's when you receive your resurrected body. That church is when we get to spend forever and ever with him. And he fulfills all of these promises that right now, this inheritance that I have, I am receiving in part, but then, church, I will receive in full. In full, I look forward to that day. That day will be absolutely amazing. But hope looks to the future. Faith, now see, faith is different. Faith bridges the past with the future and acts in the present. And that's what we see here in chapter 11. Let me just say that one more time. Faith bridges the past with the future and acts in the present. So we could say that Tim Tebow realized that the players that were surrounding him were outstanding players. And that was the truth. He had seen how hard they played and against difficult teams, they bested them. They reached deep, they persevered. That's fact, that's the past. He looks ahead to the future. Guys, you know what? We're gonna try and win every single game and then faith enters and acts 
every moment from that day forward until they won the national championship. And that's what we see here. There is a a hope, a promise that is given. And so in this way, hope and faith are very similar, but faith is much broader because faith acts in the present. That's what we're going to see here. By faith, knowing who God is and how he acted and operated in the past, we now see or hear his promise for the future and we act today. So I want you to read with me, follow with me in in chapter 11, verse 1. He says, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This idea of being sure is a Greek word that means confidence or assurance. It literally means reality. But faith is not the reality that out, that's out there, all right? Otherwise, there's no need for faith. It's already taking place. Faith is what's, there is the reality in here. And so most translations translate this, confidence. So faith is a confidence. You know, hope, hope is strong, but faith solidifies that and therefore acts on that hope. So faith is the conviction, the sense of certainty of what I am hoping for. And because of that certainty, it is willing to risk all and act today. And we're going to see how that unfolds in this chapter here. I'm not exactly, to be honest with you, I'm not exactly sure how how many sermons God is going to have me preach. I just know what he has for me today. For whatever reason, that's how God's been doing this. And so I want to be faithful. I want to be obedient. And I'm going to preach to you what the Lord's laid on my heart from chapter 11. Faith, then, is also this, it's being certain of what we do not see. In this word, I think in King James translates it evidence, or some translations call it proof. Again, that's the external. We see the author of Hebrews is talking about what's internal, because faith is not something that's outside and seen but it is inside. And so consequently, it's the proof inside and the certainty of that. We call it conviction. And so it's the conviction of what we do not see. And it rests solidly on this. So faith is rooted in truth, we learned, and promise. Faith is not something, you know, I'm just going to choose to believe in something that, I mean, it may not be true, but I'm choosing to believe it, though I, you know, I could be wrong. That's not faith. Faith is a sense of certainty. It's being taught in, in many churches today that it's okay. Faith, faith doubts. It, it, and and it, it, doubting is actually encouraged. But what certainty? If faith is a certainty, how is doubt actually helping? God, of course, we have questions, and God is moving us closer and closer to this sense of certainty because when we act on our faith we act because there's this sense of certainty within us faith isn't uh, you know many times as, as you uh, go to somewhat liberal schools they will they will share that faith is this is is more like hope i can remember back in college I took a writing course, composition, and the professor was actually the professor that my dad had when he was about 30 years old. And this professor, uh, my dad did his thesis under this man for his master's degree. Now, he, I remember, he, he remembered my dad, and we swapped some stories. And then he, I asked him, can I do a paper on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He said, sure. And at the end of the paper, he, he gave me a good grade, but he said, Mike, does your proving of the resurrection undermine faith? And so he said, I would love to talk to you afterward. So I thought, this will be an awesome opportunity. And so what he began to share with me is that when faith becomes certain that somehow it's no longer faith because faith apparently 
has doubt mixed in with it. That it's, it's more something that we hope for. We, we might be right, we might be wrong, but once this thing becomes certain, then faith is no longer exercised. But you see, faith is the sense of certain. It's just the opposite. Faith, my faith is not a blind faith. Someone didn't just wake up and say, hey, you know, there's a God out there. And I said, oh, really? I'll take your word for it. No, I'm, I'm a skeptic at heart. I ask a lot of questions. And so I like to investigate. I'm like, well, why do you think there is a God? And so I know in my journey, I had known the Lord for six years, and I began to have a number of these questions. I was majoring in psychology, and one of those questions was, Mike, how do you know, I'm asking myself this, how do you know that there truly is a God and that his son is Jesus, that you can trust this word, that Jesus even rose from the dead? I mean, what are you really following after in this thing called faith? And it was actually about that time in which I was taking this guy's course. And so I was wrestling through it, and I think it was about the time that I had worked through that. My wife, not my wife at the time, I was, uh, I was courting her at the time. She gave me some excellent, uh, an excellent book that then spring, sprung into a couple of other books about evidences. And I began to study the evidences, and I realized that my faith wasn't just some blind, presumptuous faith. It was rooted in so much truth, and now my faith... Though rooted in truth, my faith had an object, actually a person, as its focus. Hope has a promise as its focus. Now, faith includes this, but faith is relational. And because it's relational, it looks to the promise giver and finds its hope and its conviction in him, who is, Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so faith has a person as its focus. And so I, I began to, to get grounded in some of these evidences, and I was just blown away. And I walked away with an even greater certainty of what I did not see and a greater conviction of what I hoped for. Faith, then, is, it seeks to be so certain it stakes It's life, and this is what the entire chapter is about in the promise giver. God promised. Look at the things that he has done, how he created the worlds, and he had a purpose in mind, and faith says, yes, Lord, and then it commits to the promise giver, but it acts today. So we're going to look at Abraham here, and the question is going to be, how did Abraham act? What did he do? Faith acts in the present. Well, let's see this. So turn with me to Acts 11, verses 8 through 10 right now. So to Rose's uh, statement about Abraham, I, I, I was acknowledging I'm actually preaching on Abraham. And yes, he is a friend of God, though that wasn't my focus. It's going to be this, as you'll see. But it still is Abraham. I thought that was interesting that she brought up the example of Abraham. And because Abraham trusted in God, He extended these promises to him as the faithful promise giver. Verse 8, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place, he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. Hebrews 11, 8, 9, and 10. Verse 9, by faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city with foundations. Excuse me, he was looking to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So here's Abraham. He's in the city of Ur, in the land of who are called the Chaldeans. Chaldeans were a very strong I don't want to say nation, people group in the Mesopotamian area. If you were to turn to a map in the back of your Bible, you would find the Euphrates and the Tigris uh, run through the land of the Chaldeans. In the lower eastern portion of the Mesopotamia was where Ur of the Chaldeans was. They worshiped the moon god. Terah, Abraham's father, was a worshiper of idols and more than likely 
he was an idolater who worshipped the moon god. Now, Abraham had an event, and, and we do not understand exactly how this was, but as God generally did, he appeared to Abraham in a vision. But in this vision, he gave him a promise. Actually, he gave him a command coupled with a promise that we read in Genesis chapter 12. So I want you to go there. Keep your Bibles there in, keep your Bibles there in uh, Hebrews 11. And then turn to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Here are the promises. It says, the Lord had said to Abram, <coughs> excuse me, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. <clears throat> Whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, we know that the ultimate fulfillment of this, Galatians 3 says, is found in Jesus Christ. And it was through Jesus that all the nations will be blessed. Abra excuse me, Jesus, of course, being in the lineage of Abraham. While Abraham is in Ur, God apparently has spoken this command coupled with promises to him. And so he is asked to leave everything that's familiar. He is asked to leave his family and relatives. He takes his wife, and he is going to be setting out. But yet his dad, Tara, it says that he's the one who's leading the way. Back up just a few verses in chapter 11, and in verse 31 it says, Tara took his son Abram. Tara took him. Terah apparently is leading. God spoke to Abraham, and yet because of this patriarchal society, Terah says, you know what, guys? This, we need to go, and, and we're going to read here, he is in, he's inclined to move to Canaan. Now, I don't know how all of this played out, but God spoke to Abraham, and maybe it was Terah coming to Abraham saying, hey, son, I would like you to come with me, and we're going to move to Canaan. And then God, as Abraham is wrestling with this, God appears to him in a vision, and he gives him this promise that we read here in chapter 12, and in essence, assuring him. But his dad, who is an idolater, is leading the way. Can you have any greater uncertainty? God is giving me this promise, and I have to submit Excuse me, dad, but to an ungodly dad who worships probably the moon god and, and, and therefore he, he does not listen to the counsel of the God who created all things that I am a servant of, whom I'm a servant. And yet, God, I'm going to trust you because you promised and you're going to work through my dad. Now, Terah had in mind to go to Canaan. All that Abram knows, his name's Abram, later changed to Abraham. All that Abram knows is that God is going to take him to a place that he's going to show. He does not tell him where. It might be Canaan, it might not. Abram's not told. But God is going to show him, and he's going to reveal his promise, and it will happen. Have you ever been in that situation where you feel like God has given you a promise? Maybe it's a promise of a raise. Maybe it's a promise of being able to better provide for your family. Uh, Diego is in a situation like this, but how is, how is Diego going to get a, a raise? How is De Diego going to be able to get any kind of promotion? It's going to have to come through his bosses. And I don't know how closely his bosses walked with the Lord. Some of them actually do, but not the, to my knowledge, not the ones directly involved in this decision. So God, how are you going to bring about your promise for me to be able to truly adequately as I want to be able to provide for my family. Because there are ungodly men that you're going to have to work through. And so we prayed. And we said, God, would you step into this situation? Because you're sovereign. You can change the heart of a king like a watercourse. You can change these bosses, Diego's direct boss. 
and those responsible for a decision like this. You can change their heart. And sure, and we pray, God, may that happen before they get married. We actually boldly prayed for a specific amount. Two weeks before Diego got married. And he kind of played a little game with us. He said he had something so important to tell us. And he brought Meredith and I up into the master bedroom, nice and quiet, and with Rose there. And he began to talk about this, that, and the other. And Rose looked at me and said, Diego, is, is this why you brought us up here? It's like, I'm, I'm almost a little disappointed. I thought it was going to be a little bit more than this. And then he said, oh, yes, that's right. I also wanted to tell you that I got a raise. And he told us the amount, and it was the exact amount that we had prayed for. And it happened two weeks before they got married. See, God can work through the most unlikely people to bring about his promises. And he can turn their hearts. If you're married to an ungodly man, wives, God can work through that ungodly man's heart to serve his purposes and to fulfill his promises that he gives you. God can work through all circumstances. God can even use the devil to bring about his ultimate purpose and ultimate good. Can I just mention an example? The cross. You got it? The, the, the most horrific crime ever to occur on the face of this earth, the crucifixion of the Son of God. And yet, Satan simply played right into the hands of because God is sovereign over every aspect of your life. Our problem is that we can be so filled with doubt and our eyes can get focused and set on the, the things that are temporal. And, you know, well, well, God, what about my boss? And, you know, he's such an ungodly man and, and maybe he's critical, maybe this, that, or the other. Not that he is, he was Diego. But what about this, that, and the other God? I don't care. How are you going to do it? Pray anyway. Believe God anyway. And let God move. You see, Abraham, when he left, don't you think he had questions? Like, number one, where? You're going to show me uh, where? And God, understand that I know you want me to be led by my dad right now, but he wants to go to Canaan. And what? Where's that on, on your agenda and your map, God? And it, he, he may have even thought, I mean, Canaan's already populated. I thought maybe the middle of the Saudi Arabian desert where there's no one to live. Maybe you'll give me a place there. And that would be easy to settle down in, I, I suppose, and, and be able to, you know, gain some large land there, but I mean, where are you leading me? How are you really going to get me there? For us, maybe our questions are similar, like the when question. God, when are you going to do this? I feel like you've given me a promise, but when? And right now, God, all I'm seeing are obstacles after obstacles after obstacles, and I'm even wondering if I even heard you right or maybe I'm even wondering just how good you really are. We can ask the why question. God, why are you allowing me to go through this? Doesn't your word say in Psalm 91 that a thousand will fall at your left and 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near me? Well, guess what, God? It came near me, and it hurt, and it actually devastated. Where were you then? Can I assure you? That if God is going to allow the enemy to come into his camp, you are the camp of God. To come into his camp, it is only to ambush him. It is only so that God's ultimate purposes and his good and his glory will be exalted. It is only to be a display of his grace as we called it, turning tragedy into triumph. That is the best that Satan can do. Listen to this. If God is saying, I'm going to completely protect you, and then he allows the enemy to come in, it is only and can only be because he has an ultimate good that is far greater than being able to protect you at that moment. And there is a promise there. Will you allow this tragedy that's now come into your life, maybe because of man's sin, crucifixion, 
happened because of men's wicked, rebellious hearts against God, even the religious leaders of Jesus' day. And they betrayed him, and they turned their back. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Actually, slapped him on a cross. If God can ambush the devil in that, can he not ambush the devil in your much smaller circumstance? And I don't say that to minimize the tragedy that you have been through. I don't, I'm, that's not what I'm saying. But would you not agree that compared to the crucifixion and the death on a cross of the Son of God, that it's maybe at least a little smaller? So if God can take care of that, what about your situation? Can he not take that situation and turn it into something amazing, a display of his grace? And we see here in the book of Genesis, that God led Abraham to Haran and he was anticipating going to Canaan. At least that was his dad Terah's plan. But Terah camped out there. It actually says that he settled there as you read the very end of chapter 11, uh, verse 31. But when they came to Haran, because their purpose it says, um, they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Then it goes on, Terah lived 205 years. Not 205 more years, 205 years total. And he died in Haran. Abram, now living in Haran. God, what are you going to do? Led him to Canaan. The original intent of his ungodly dad. And through all of the murkiness and the questions, God led Abraham to this place. And when he arrives, he says, he's now, Abram is, is 75, it tells us in chapter 12 here, and he builds an altar and dedicates his purposes to the Lord, lays them down for him, and God begins to bring about his purposes. You see, even though Abraham had questions, even though he had concerns, he still trusted that God was going to see him through it. Every bit. He had to leave. He had unanswered questions. Terah was going to lead the way. I'm sure he had further questions when he arrived at Haran and his dad died. And then God finally said, move on. The circumstances ended up dictating the timing but not the certainty of the promise revealed in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. That can be a scary place to be. Circumstances dictating the timing of God's promises. I don't know about you, I, I can really be an impatient person. When God gives a promise or he stirs something in my heart, I want it to happen right now. God put dreams in my heart, but he never laid out for me the when. And for so much of my life, I've been saying, okay, God, reveal the when. But here's what I've discovered. You know, the, the promises, for example, in ministry and supporting my family, here's what I've discovered. Wow, all along this way, this process, here's what God has done. You, we were watching a movie last night called Little Women. I guess it's the, the updated version of it. And I love the beauty of that in which the four sisters were so close. And guess what? I happen to have four daughters and a son in the mix of all of this. And last night, when the movie was almost when the movie was done and, and my family was kind of talking, and I remember from the kitchen just looking out and I almost broke out into tears, but I but I didn't because I thought, wow, they're gonna think, Dad, what's wrong? What's wrong with you? But and I looked out and, and I realized, God, look what you have given me. This is the most precious thing that I could ever have in my family, in my extended family, because both of my sons-in-law were, were there and with grandchildren, and it was like, man, and my sister-in-law. This is amazing, God. And, and, and the beauty that I saw in that movie of the relationships among the, the daughters, and I say, wow, God, that's what you've blessed me with, with a family that loves one another, and we have memories. Maybe one of my kids will write about it one day. But the truth is that in this process, in this timing, asking the when 
question. God has this process that he's going to take you through, and he's asking, can you allow me to make this process beneficial so that when you step back, you would say, thank you, Lord, that you brought me through it. You know, I've I've seen maybe a little bit of the movie Click with uh, Adam Sandler. Our clear play takes half the movie out, I think. But when he comes through a portion of his life, he can press, I think he presses a remote, and his life just fast forwards over this difficult time. But by the end of the movie, he realizes he cheated himself because so much of the process was what built in his life, in his family, and he missed it all. Because it's in the midst of that tragedy and the difficulties that God does amazing things that actually, no, it's not a religious movie, so I'm taking it on from here. But that we, we don't want to click because God is going to take us through this process, this waiting, this building of patience, this process that is building something amazing. And last night as I looked over my family, I just said, God, thank you for the process. Thank you for what you have done in my life. This is amazing. This is what it's all about. And I was so grateful at that moment that God blessed me with a wife that was completely sold out to the Lord first and to what he wanted us to do as parents. I was, we have not been perfect parents, but as I looked at those, uh, my family, I just said, God, mm, thank you so much. Abraham still had questions. When the where question was answered, the when question popped up. So God, when are you going to give me this land? When are you going to give me children? Because if you're going to make me into a great nation, guess what that means, Lord? That means my wife being barren and me being like really old, how are you going to do? I need children. I need heirs. I I need to have descendants because that's what makes a nation, right? Am, Am I wrong, Lord? And and these questions of, okay, God, when? Because I need to have a son. And you remember how many sons God gave him through Sarah? Count them. One. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. One. And through that one, it took a time. It took a while. God fulfilled his promise because God is faithful. So faith acts in the present. But the second thing is we want to see that faith looks and lives for the future. He says that he lived in tents. And we are to contrast that, though, with the very fact that he looked forward to a city with foundations, whose architect and builder was God. He looked ahead to the real promised land, and that was heaven. That was the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. And so he made a choice. He did not settle as his dad had settled in Haran, whatever that even looked like. But for him, settling meant we're going to live in tents because God had promised him that land, but it was for a future time. Hebrews tells us the promise was given to Abraham, but he never saw the fulfillment of that. Can you imagine going through your whole life And it's maybe not you that fulfills this amazing promise. It's your child or your grandchild or your great-grandchild. How does that affect how you live right now? Because for Abraham, faith looked to the future with such certainty of what he couldn't see and what he hoped for that he lived radically today. And by radically, I mean he refused to compromise with the pressures of the world and to live for the world to the point where two chapters later, when he has the opportunity to become wealthy through the king of Sodom, he says, absolutely not. And I'm going to paraphrase, because you, king, have strings attached to it, and I never want to be called on the carpet to do you a favor, because that's what happens when you get things for free. And he says, nope. Thank you. For, he was kind about it, but nope, I'm not going to receive anything from you. You keep it all. I don't need it. And you know what? God blessed him beyond measure. And he became wealthy regardless. And he stood on his convictions in his faith because he was looking ahead and he refused to live in a way that compromised his future. 
We're going to see that in, in Moses. But for Abraham, he chose to live in tents. And so faith looks ahead to the future, and that decides how he lives today in the present. A future promise determining how we would live today. I have written down here in my notes, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it anyway. It might be a bit embarrassing for me. But I remember when I was a younger dad and my kids were much smaller, um, I would pick up my guitar and I would sing this song called Hold On. And it's, a, it's about different people, but Hannah holding on to the promise God had given her, her for a son. And it goes, hold on, God's going to do it. Hold on. Oh, great, now I forget it. Hold on, God's going to do it. Hold on, I prayed and I knew it. Hold on, God's going to do it. You'll find the best of things take time. Takes time. Yeah, that was a little bit embarrassing to do. But you know what? <laughs> Hope, faith holds on and it prays because it has its eyes on the future. Hold on. Persevere, it said at the end of chapter chapter 10. Hold on. God's going to do it. Be patient with the timing. You don't have to have all of your questions answered. Can you still believe? Because we serve a God whose promises are rooted in truth, unwavering foundational truth. And it is out of that that he extends this promise. Can you hold on? Can you look to the future and hope with certainty? An inner conviction, a sense of proof. Yes, God is going to do it. The devil will do anything in your life to undermine that unwavering hope. As we move on to, to verse 11, looking at the time here, it says, By faith Abraham, even though he was past age, and Sarah herself was barren, so two strikes against them, was enabled. And I want you to underline those two words was enabled. By faith, Abraham was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. Now, you, remember, you may remember, we can many times, and Abraham did this when he sought to have a, his, the promise fulfilled through Hagar, his maidservant, and he sought a fulfillment of it through the world's way, the world's strategy, and he was doing this to God honestly without realizing it, and God brought him to repentance, and he was wondering, okay, God, well, how are you going to do it if not through Ishmael? And God, in essence, was saying, Abraham, can you trust me? But God, I'm getting so old, and my wife is barren. And by faith, instead of doing this, he turned and did this. And he, as a result, he, he, be, he positioned himself to receive this outpouring of God's grace because faith received. Faith acts, faith looks forward, and faith, we're seeing here, receives. Faith is in Jesus Christ, the giver of the promise, the one through whom God created all things, for him and through him. I'm turning to you, God. And when it says, by faith, Abraham was enabled, that is Abraham receiving now, by faith, receiving the necessary grace for the impossible. And he became a father. He became a father because faith. He considered him faithful who had made the promise. If, faith, if God truly is faithful, then faith responds and aligns itself with God's outpoured grace. When we've homeschooled our children, my wife has had them read a book that, as a very young man, impacted my life. And it's called A Distant Grief. And it's about the martyrdom under Idi Amin's reign of terror in, I believe, 1972 in Kenya. And this gentleman, by the name of Kefa Simpanji, had come to Christ he was a professor at a university, and he began evangelizing, and there was a tremendous move of God in that university, and hundreds were coming to Christ to the point 
where, to my recollection, he quit his job and he began to pastor full-time Redeemer Church. But about this time, Idi Amin's reign of terror against Christians and against anyone that was not of his clan began to breathe out threats, killing people, thousands of people, thousands of people. The reason why this is so significant it was because in this time, his church grew to 14,000. There were two men sent by Idi Amin to kill Papa Simpanji. This is their testimony. They entered this group of people. There were thousands and thousands worshiping God. And they said, they, as they looked around, they recognized some of the women. Do you know why he, they recognized him, them? Because either they had raped them or they had killed their husband or both. There were widows gathered there. And they said we, they looked on their faces, the ones that they had so deeply offended and hurt, and there was joy on their faces. And they rejoiced in this Jesus Christ. And they were taken aback by this. When the service was done, they very stealthily, and I don't know how you stealthily follow somebody, but followed Kepha Sampangi to his house. And when Kepha was about to enter his home, they pulled a gun on him. And they said, we've been sent here by Idi Amin to kill you. But we've seen your church, and it amazes us. But we have to do this. So please forgive us, but we have to kill you. And Idi and Kepha Sambagi, he said this. He said, before you kill me, can I pray for you? <laughs> what do you say? <laughs> um, is he trying to pull a fast one? Is he going to pray and then slip inside? What they said, sure. And he begins to pray for them. And they begin to weep. And the conviction of the Spirit of God comes upon them so heavily, they put their guns down and they walk away. And their lives were forever changed. That is the promise of God in a life-threatening situation. Can you imagine Kepha saying, God, I've got to step into my home here. I don't know what you're going to do about my wife or my children. If you want to take my life, then I will trust you that you will provide for them. But there was something that stirred in Kepha's heart that broke for these men. Henchmen of this horrific dictator. And he prayed for them. And he did this. God, just let me receive. And the Spirit of God spoke through him and prayed through him. And the grace of God didn't just fall upon him, but upon these two men. And God did something absolutely amazing. And he took this potential tragedy and immediately turned it into a display of his grace. Church, that's what this is all about. God, this is an impossible situation. I know one thing, and that is that I can't. Okay, I know two things. I can't, but I know you can. And so Kepha Simpanji, he did this. And he received. And in your situation today, many of you, I know for sure, you're in desperate need to receive God's abundant provision of grace. Faith receives. And when faith receives, God's grace enables. And he is faithful Whatever promise, whatever it is that is stirring in your heart, I know there are things I'm praying for because they're beyond my ability, but I am praying, and I'm just saying, okay, God, I don't know how you're going to work this out, but I believe I am pr I'm praying for this person to be healed. I'm praying for this breakthrough over here because, God, right now, only you can do it. I can't. Can you stand with me? <laughs> In view of this, for some of you, tragedy, that in the midst of it, there's a buried promise from God. Or perhaps just something God has placed in your heart years ago. And your main question is, okay, God, when? I'm challenging you to have faith, to persevere, because the one who promises is faithful. Faith receives. And as, it, Abraham, as we saw in Abraham, faith acts. Keeps looking to the future. It acts today. What would God want you to do right now, today? 
begin to life change? What is God speaking? What is he saying? In spite of what you're seeing with your eyes, how are you to live today? You see, he understands how hard it is. It is not distant. Your problem, your situation is not distant from God. But he is right here today asking you, are you willing to set aside the questions? Because I will answer them in my timing. And can you act today? Can you keep your eyes focused ahead? And can you receive by faith every bit of grace that he needs for your situation? And if it does not work out just as you have been asking and praying, it is only because God has something better. Can you trust God today? Father, some of us right now, we are so desperate. Some of us, we've been waiting a long time. But today we're making a choice. We're going to hold on. We may not be able to sing that song just right. But we do know that it's about a God who is always right, who is always perfect, and who is an amazing keeper of his promises. And so, Father, we lift our hands and we say we want to receive. By faith, we want to receive all of your grace and all of your goodness and all of your promises. We cannot see all that lies ahead of us. But what the enemy means for evil, you will turn around for good. And we trust you for this. Father, let us be humbled, broken if necessary, so that the only thing that we can stand on is your promise, your goodness, your unfailing love. God, have your way. We will follow you. And just in this atmosphere, this attitude of prayer, if God is wanting you to be prayed for, and you really feel that burdening in your heart, I want you to just come on in. We want to pray for you. We want to stand with you. That's why we meet together, remember? So that as we pray, as maybe God would give prophetic words, as we minister to one another, God is using us as that one who comes alongside and brings encouragement. If you want prayer, I'm going to encourage you to come on up and let's be prayed for. Father, you are so good. In spite of what we see today, you are so good. Your promises are faithful and true. And we will hold on by your grace. Bring to pass every good intention in your heart. In Jesus' name.